Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Kat Lebricks. We are co-host for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Bereskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at bereskinpar.com slash podcast to access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. So Kat, today's a little different. So we're lucky to have Jennifer McKenzie of our Toronto office uh, speaking with a Colorado-based attorney, Garrett Graff of Hoban Law Group. They're going to talk to us today about uh, branding and promotion related to cannabis and cannabis accessories. As you have probably heard, cannabis recently became legal in Canada. I did hear that, yes. Yeah, there's yeah. been big, little coverage. A lot of announcement in the paper, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I think it's been legal in some states in the United States, including Colorado. So although ours is sort of nationally legal there, it was locally legal, but we have, I think, a lot to learn from, from them. And so appropriately, uh, Jennifer is going to be speaking with Garrett Graff, who's the managing attorney at the Hoban Law Firm in Denver, Colorado. Um, Garrett's been recognized by the National Law Journal as a cannabis law trailblazer. He specializes in the representation of clients both in the marijuana and the industrial hemp industries, and it involves corporate uh, M&A work, real estate, regulatory compliance, and intellectual property protection, as well as civil and commercial litigation. And Garrett is going to have a discussion with Jennifer McKenzie, who is co-chair of our cannabis group here at Breskin and Parr. And Jennifer also leads our regulatory advertising and marketing group. Jennifer is a partner here in our offices in Toronto. And in addition to extensive trademark prosecution and enforcement practice, Jennifer has extensive experience in regulatory advertising and marketing matters. She represents clients in a wide range of industries, from prepackaged consumer goods to various regulated products, including cannabis. Welcome, Garrett. Thank you for having me today, Jennifer. To set the stage, I thought I would begin with some big picture comments. Cannabis for recreational use has been legal in Canada for just under seven months, and it's been a really interesting start to the recreational market. Just after legalization, Health Canada issued seven warning letters to licensed producers for non-compliance with the promotion provisions of the Cannabis Act. Those letters weren't disclosed, nor were the recipients. We can continue to see interesting investments and joint ventures between cannabis companies and alcohol and pharma companies. And what's plaguing everyone and has been on the uh, minds of, of participants in this field are the supply shortages. Cannabis has been legal in your home state since January 2014. How was the first year following legalization? Did you have the, the same sort of tumultuous start? Uh, certainly, we, we did. Now, you know, it's important to keep in mind that uh, Colorado actually legalized medical marijuana several years prior to that. So there was already this, uh, you know, lead up and anticipation, you know, a, a partially established industry in Colorado uh, on the medical side. And, you know, giving thought to the fact that uh, as between medical and, and uh, adult use, uh, the distinction really is the gatekeeper function. On the medical side, it's a patient card for certain conditions. And on the adult use side, it's for age. So when uh, adult use uh, marijuana was first legalized in Colorado, there's this huge transition from the medical industry only to a, a split between medical uh, and recreational. And in many cases, existing and established medical operations were giving precedence to uh, convert into a, an adult use facility as well and to eff effectively have uh, uh, corresponding medical and recreational licenses. 
oh, in Colorado. Uh, so in some respects, there uh, it, it was not tumultuous in the sense that we've been doing this for several years and there was many uh, parallels to the medical marketplace and the medical regulations. But in other respects, there was certainly tumultuousness. For example, uh, figuring out whether vertical integration, which was required on the medical side, uh, was necessary or appropriate on the adult use side. Furthermore, figuring out that preferential treatment giving, given to existing uh, marijuana, uh, medical marijuana operators uh, in order to convert into adult use operators. So that's interesting. Are there advantages if you're an individual to, to going through the medical stream rather than the recreational? Uh, so there, there's a few different advantages or considerations. So on the medical side, you know, there are certain prescribed conditions that you can get a recommendation from a doctor for. Now, there's a few things to, to give thought to here. On the uh, adult use side, there was an excise tax that was generally passed on to consumers. Right. So oftentimes, adult use marijuana would be more expensive, whereas uh, the taxation would be less so on the medical side. Uh, there were also some slight differences, at, at least at the outset. They've since been reconciled in the years since. Uh, but uh, there were some differences with respect to potencies of products and labeling requirements and, and other similar facets as between medical and adult use marijuana products such that uh, for a period of time there was actually great, uh, more information provided on uh, adult use marijuana products than on medical marijuana products, meaning consumers with adult use marijuana products actually uh, may have more information about the product they were taking, which seems ironic given the idea of medical marijuana being in theory to, to, to provide some sort of medical treatment, in which case you would want all the information available. So uh, yeah, there were certainly some, some transitional uh, differences between uh, the two regulatory schemes. In many respects, you know, what were now five years uh, since the start of, of adult use marijuana, and in many respects, uh, those two systems have since been reconciled for the most part. Right. One of the things I wanted to ask you is Canada is one of the first countries to uh, legalize uh, nationally uh, marijuana for uh, recreational use and I think many people are sympathetic to the fact that our laws are so strict um, as as recreational marijuana is introduced and I'm wondering given that you've got this five-year history in Colorado have any of the laws um, changed uh, as as Colorado witnessed how uh, uh, recreational cannabis is being consumed and used uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Colorado, uh, alongside the state of Washington, uh, were two of the first movers, if you will, with respect to establishing adult use regulatory schemes. So to some extent, uh, they were playing pin the tail on the donkey with a blindfold on, uh, had to to make their, you know, put their best foot forward, uh, but also consider it uh, to be a learning experience as we go. So uh, there's the things that Colorado has done well that's been adopted in many other states, and there's things that uh, Colorado uh, has had to relax uh, or reevaluate over the course of time and that other states have done so. So to give a couple examples to this, uh, over the course of time, labeling restrictions uh, enticements of children, you know, using things like cartoonish uh, characters and uh, you know shapes uh, that are and or fruits that are uh, typically enticing to children, um, uh, packaging and labeling potency restrictions. Many of those issues were unsettled uh, in the early days of, of adult use marijuana in Colorado, and so over the course of time, the restrictions have become uh, more stringent, more definitive, uh, providing clarity for both the industry, uh, consumers, and uh, the regulators all alike. 
but there have been uh, you know other instances where uh, you know Colorado has, has done things the right way. For example, uh, Colorado has did not provide a cap on licenses. They provided deference to, to cities and other municipalities to establish whether they wanted licenses or not. That, in many respects, has avoided some of the competitive application processes that are often susceptible to litigation that you've seen in other states like Pennsylvania, Maryland, and elsewhere. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are certainly some things that Colorado has done right and have absolutely been modeled after uh, in other states. Well, that's all very interesting. I, I, you've probably followed the um, lottery regime for retail licenses that uh, completed in Ontario. and. I think that that was widely criticized, and for the next tranche, I'm not sure that they'll follow that same uh, system. Um, one of the things I want to get into uh, with you is that um, the Federal Cannabis Act has a number of stated purposes, and one of them is to um, protect the public health and safety, and also uh, to ensure that um, uh, young persons and others are not induced to use cannabis. And I was wondering if there's any statistics that you can share with us on uh, the last five years, whether there has been a migration of alcohol uh, users to recreational cannabis use, whether there's been a decline in um, sort of traditional pain medicines to, to, towards cannabis. A anything that you could tell us there? So it, that's, a, that's a great question. It's a tough question to, to answer. Despite the fact that we've had five years of uh, experience uh, and, and uh, you know use of marijuana in Colorado, there's still a fair amount of lacking of a clinical or standardized data. Uh, for every study that I could provide that could show a, a migration away from opioid or, or uh, prescription drug use or a reduction in alcoholic uh, uh, consumption, you could also likely show a study that should that would show the exact opposite. That's long been a struggle. Uh, in the U.S. in terms of being able to provide uh, definitive, standardized clinical research because of the controls around marijuana, which thus necessarily limits the ability to provide clinical research. Well, I want to get into this uh, a little later, this combination of alcohol and cannabis when we talk about edibles, given that uh, uh, edibles will be another legal form of cannabis as of October 17, 2019. Another um, question, which is that um, one of the other stated purposes of the Cannabis Act is to obviously make an illicit market licit. And when cannabis was first legalized, um, the province I live in, Ontario, was not organized at the bricks and mortar retail level. So be, before April, if you wanted to uh, purchase um, cannabis, you had to visit the Ontario-run store and purchase online. And there were reports that um, the illegal market still thrives, and in part because the privacy-minded consumer didn't want to give their credit card, which is necessary to make an online purchase. Have you heard any similar things that um, in those places where uh, the online sale is available that people are reluctant to use it for privacy concerns? Uh, so in terms of uh, the black market, um, uh, you know, thriving or not, there are certainly issues there. I think the concerns are different than that in Canada in terms of the use of credit cards, in large part because in many cases you can't use credit cards here because credit cards are governed by federal law and marijuana is federally illegal in the U.S. 
So that's long been a, a hampering issue uh, in the U.S. is how to account for uh, payment in stores, whether that be cash, whether that be some form of alternative payment solution, think PayPal or some, some form of cloud-based uh, uh, compensation or consideration. Uh, or tokens or coins or cryptocurrency even in some instances too. Uh, but generally speaking, not credit cards. And so that would typically not be the issue here, but in terms of you know, making uh, payments or purchasing in the U.S., um, I would oftentimes find that folks are willing to go to dispensaries uh, because they know what the products that they're getting. There are certain states in which the black market is still thriving, and a lot of that has to do with uh, the cost. So in, in cases where the cost is still exorbitant or taxation on marijuana is still uh, exorbitant, uh, for example, California, there is a thriving black market there and the uh, regulatory scheme has not uh, uh, you know, subdued the black market there. But in many other instances, the black market has subsided to some extent um, uh, by virtue of having the regulated uh, regulatory scheme. So it's, it, I typically see it be a, being a function of price control more than privacy concerns. Okay. Um, there are some instances in which you know privacy is still desired, and so certainly that that continues. But for example, in Colorado, uh, you can grow in your own house uh, uh, constitutionally for your own personal uh, benefit. Is there a so, plant limit? You, you can only have two uh, yeah. plants, or yeah. So on the recreational side, six plant uh, six plants per person, generally twelve per household. On the medical side, there are some potential exceptions that would uh, exceed that. Although that's come under fire, uh, just given how many plants are you know, actually needed by a particular patient. Uh, but so that's also helped in the sense of uh, trying to incentivize folks that if they want to grow for themselves and not go to dispensaries, then certainly they can do so. Uh, so I, I would say that there has been progress made in many jurisdictions uh, with respect to the black market. And just did you say it was a cost issue that is um, uh, attributed to the thriving black market in California? Uh, yes, in okay. large part. That yeah. in, I mean, part of that, too, may be the privacy concerns. To some extent, California has tripped over its own feet. They legalized marijuana so long ago and did so with so little regulation for so many years that now it's really hard to walk back that you know, deregulation or unregulation at that point in time. So let's talk about promotions. The Federal Cannabis Act contains a broad prohibition on promotion of cannabis. And then there are examples of activities that are specifically prohibited. And I wanted to go through a couple of those specific prohibitions and contrast them with the U.S. state's laws. Um, let's talk about testimonials and endorsements because that's one of the specific prohibitions. You can't promote and you can't have a label or package that displays by any means a testimonial or endorsement. Now in Canada, there have been interesting alliances between licensed producers and celebrities. Most recently, Seth Rogen and his screenwriting partner, Evan Goldberg, announced that they had teamed up with Canopy Growth to launch a Toronto-based cannabis company called Houseplant. And according to the press, Canopy Growth will own 25% of that business and will be a venture partner providing the infrastructure to grow cannabis. Um, typically, we learn about these things in press releases where celebrities are, are announcing their um, investment in the company. So it'll be interesting to see in time whether these companies will um, tr try to capitalize on the uh, investment by the celebrity. Now, I understand there isn't a similar prohibition in the states and that there are these alliances that are being formed and, and that celebrities and the companies are capitalizing on them. Is that, is that the case? 
Uh, again, this is you know somewhat of a uh, consequence, whether intended or unintended, of the distinction between state and federal law. So generally speaking, those sorts of testimonials and social influencers and things like that would be governed at the federal level by the FTC. Uh, but given that marijuana is federally illegal, those federal agencies are effectively you know, uh, playing hands off with respect to the marijuana scheme. So then it effectively becomes deferential to state laws and states which do or do not regulate that issue, some of which do and others of which don't. Um, I would say of all the issues, the making of medical or disease claims, you know, the use of marijuana to treat cancer or, uh, you know, to uh, treat pain or epilepsy or whatever the, the condition might be, those are, are, are fairly consistent across the board that they are prohibited, right. especially on a label, but even, you know, to the extent that a regulatory agency can review other marketing materials like a website or whatnot, um, you know, certainly that would be prohibited as well. Now, that said, how many resources do these agencies actually have to enforce such a position or, or a perspective? Uh, so oftentimes, this comes in the form of required disclaimers on a label, uh, and even some states actually require pre-market review of labels to ensure that the labels themselves being, you know, the e most easily accessible at the point of sale, um, you know, are uh, uh, consistent and, and appropriate for uh, marketing. Uh, but there are plenty of folks who are operating primarily online uh, and providing, you know, these sorts of uh, 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 press releases and social media presences and website presences uh, that might implicate the, the issues and the influencers that you're talking about. Um, and oftentimes they're, to some extent, going unchecked. And that, I think, is a function of the lack of reconciliation uh, at either a federal level or at least across a number of states. Our guests today have been Garrett Graff of the Holbein Law Group in Denver, Colorado, and our partner Jennifer McKenzie from the Toronto office of Breskin and Parr LLP. So this concludes part one of the interview. Uh, stay tuned for part two, which will be in the following podcast. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Breskin and Parr's trademark group would be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinpar.com slash podcasts. If you go there, you can access all the episodes, uh, additional information on each topic, and you can stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Par LLP. Until next time.